Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to talk all about authentication and authorization. We'll talk about some key concepts like local storage, cookies, sessions, tokens, JWTs, all the cool buzzwords. So let's go ahead and get into it. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton and I'm a UI UX designer and front end developer. And what's up, everybody? My name is James Quick, and I'm a staff developer advocate at PlanetScale. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we're joined by three fabulous sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. Zeal is a software consultancy, and they are hiring. And Dato CMS is a performant headless CMS. More from each of these later in the show. James, what have you been up to? We actually just, we missed crossing paths a couple of hours ago, so... Amy's south of Nashville, and I'm in Memphis, and one of my best friends, actually two of my best friends who are married to each other, like best friends individually, but also are married to each other, which is really nice. It was Anna's 31st birthday, and so they just had their second kid. They haven't had a lot of time in the last couple of years to just go and hang out. Anyway, so we drove up to Chattanooga and surprised her for her birthday, and there were a few tears when we showed up at her door, so it was kind of cool. And so, yeah, we had a lot of fun. We went to a place last night that is... It's like a, it's a beer place, but it's this thing where they have 60 beers on tap or whatever. And you have this card and you go up and you just put the card down and pour as much or as little as you want. And it charges you like per out. So for me, like I don't necessarily like to drink a lot, but I love tasting beer. So I probably had, I mean, I tried 10 or 12 different beers, which was not that much beer over the course of like the four hours that we were there. But it was really cool to just be able to sample all these different ones that I had really never heard of. So we had a blast. So we got back. We were driving back through Nashville. We took 840, which is the southern loop around Nashville, which is close to where Amy lives. Anyway, so we just missed each other, but we got back in time, took a nap, and then ready to record the podcast. How long is that drive? Because Tennessee is a very long state. Mm-hmm. So it probably takes eight hours to go from like the very northeast corner to the very southwest corner. It, so if you actually did that, I think it's eight or nine hours, but Chattanooga is like southeast of Nashville and not that far east. So like the angled parallelogram or whatever of Tennessee, the top right corner, top east corner, northeastern corner is further east than the mm-hmm. bottom eastern corner. So it's about five and a half hours. So it's three hours to Nashville and then two to two and a half from there to both Knoxville and Chattanooga. It's about okay. the exact same. I thought it was like four hours from Memphis to Nashville. So give you a little bit. Yeah, just three. Time. Yeah. Nice. And if you drive fast, it can be even, even shorter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've yeah. never been to Memphis. Have we talked about this? I don't know if we have. That's no. kind of hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been to Jackson, which is halfway between yeah. Nashville and Memphis. So funny. Yeah. Well, we'll have That's to... about all there is between Nashville and Memphis. Yeah. There's Jackson. not a whole lot. And I kind of... In my head, I was like, I wonder if there's any way it would make sense for us to record an episode together in person, like on the way home. Oh, that would be But I don't, like, I wouldn't have wanted to drive home late. But anyway, so yeah. come to Memphis or one day if I'm back in Nashville, we can record. Actually, some of our best friends just moved to Memphis, so. Yeah. Come hang out. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Well, anyways, <laughs> what have you been up to? Uh, I've been taking care of a sick child, so I feel like I've unlocked my next badge of achievement as a parent. That's always mm-hmm. fun. Um, parenting. Sickness is a good opportunity to unlock those badges. <laughs> <laughs> my parenting tip. I'll spare you guys the details, but it was <laughs> smelly. <laughs> our our listeners appreciate that. 
And then I did some work on my own website this past week. So Sweet. all of my articles were returning an error 500. Thank you to everybody that's <laughs> told me. But I think I finally got those fixed. So the biggest thing was I added TypeScript to my project. I've turned into a TypeScript snob where mm-hmm. I just prefer it on a project because it found several bugs and errors that had just gone unnoticed. So mm-hmm. I like that it almost kind of acts as a linter, pointing out all those things, and it just makes me yep. a better coder. So we are starting a new section <laughs> of the podcast by popular request called Opening Rants, Unpopular Opinions, and Parenting Tips, because all three of those things seem to go together. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to save the quick rant or opening rant for after your, I'm going to piggyback off of your unpopular mm. opinion. So do you want to start with your unpopular opinion and I'll yeah. jump in on top of that? My unpopular opinion is that I don't mind PHP and WordPress. And my whole reasoning is that PHP is a web language. You don't have to actually run a build process or compile anything. So if you're used to working with, say, Java or Python or Ruby, you always have to compile it and build it before you can send it out. But PHP, you just stick that PHP file up on the internet and it works as is. So I feel like as a web purist that it is maybe superior, (laughs) maybe not in terms of functionality and all the things that it offers, but I don't mind it. And then I don't mind WordPress either. WordPress powers 40% of the internet. And there's a lot of things that I've noticed just as I've been trying to experiment with different headless CMSs. I love that you have all this freedom with a headless CMS, but there are a lot of times where I find myself thinking, you know, you get this from WordPress right out of the box. So, for example, comments or trying to handle forms and things like that. WordPress doesn't do it. There's a great plugin for that. And I just feel like with Jamstack, a lot of times I have to go hunting for what I'm looking for and piece a bunch of these microservices together. It's a lot easier to manage and deal with from WordPress. So that's my unpopular opinion. Yeah. Well, I'll like rant about that a little bit, (laughs) Uh, maybe even more aggressively. Like I think people give WordPress and PHP like such a bad rap just because we've really like modernized so much in JavaScript and the tooling and the SaaS products and the things that we have available to us have gotten so much better that people look at like anything that's not with new in the last couple of years and think that it's just outdated. And to a certain point, like uh, there is, there is some, some idea of things being outdated and adopting best practices and stuff. But WordPress has been around for a long time. It's still, I think you've got the number powers 40% of the internet is still incredibly popular. And I think the most important part is if you look at like ability to do freelance and to get hired, like that's a skill that can fulfill both of those and open up opportunities for you. So I think, you know, regardless of how old something is or how it's maybe not something that's really hot and new now, do some research and kind of see, is this something that people are hiring for in my area? Is this something that I can potentially do freelance work with? Like we've talked about using no code solutions in the past to build out websites. If that's what like enables you to build stuff faster, why would you not do that? Just because other people think it's you know, old or I'm doing air quotes because this is not true, but people, it's not programming. Like whatever you got to do to build the thing that you're building, go and do that. So I love that you were able to tie into like, you've got a ton of experience with WordPress. If that's the thing that's going to help enable you to do freelance or get you jobs and get paid to be a web developer, go and do it. Yep. And you can even do serverless within WordPress. Like it will Mm -hmm. support even a lot of the newer technologies that people love. So even if you don't want to use it on the front end, you can still use it on the back end. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, maybe if people have one of their favorite, I'm doing air quotes again, outdated technologies, or maybe one that's not used anymore. Do you love, and again, it's not outdated, but do you love WordPress? Do you love jQueries or anything like that that Mm, people are maybe kind of shockingly (laughs) a fan of? Let us know on Twitter at Compressed FM. 
Well, and let me just double down on this for <laughs> a hot minute. We joke about cobalt being an old and outdated language, but there are tons of services out there that still need cobalt developers in order to maintain them and run them. And those developers are making a pretty penny because <laughs> it is an older technology. So again, don't dismiss an older technology just because. Now, yeah. I would say, put a caveat on there, it's different than being unwilling to adopt or learn new things. So there's a difference there. Yeah, I think there's definitely a balance. Like Cobalt developers are in high demand because there's so few of them and because companies are dependent upon them that they have to pay them more. But most companies are like, you know, really, really looking to get away from COBOL because of that exact problem. Mm -hmm. So for those developers, they're going to have to adapt and learn things that are going to be hireable in the future. But whatever it is, go into your research. If it's something you're going to get paid to do, sounds good to me. Awesome. So this episode is all about authentication, authorization, local storage, cookies, sessions, tokens, all of the buzzwords. And we thought that it would be fun <laughs> for me to kind of give a high-level view of some of these concepts and really to ask James. So James worked at Auth0 for a while. He knows this stuff inside and out. I don't. <laughs> so I think that's really the first point, though, to be made is you don't have to be an expert in order to be able to build websites or be proficient in what you do. And one of the things that I do is I lean on companies like Auth0 or we've been building everything felt on Supabase and that has authentication built into it. Or I did a course with Scott on Level Up Tutorials with Keystone JS and that has authentication built into it. So you don't have to roll your own, which I would even encourage people not to roll their own because there's a lot of holes and places where you might be introducing bugs or problems within your code that really should be protective. I mean, when you think about it, you probably get an email almost every week that says that this service has been hacked or your username and password has been compromised. So when you can, lean on these services. But if you're interested in how the sausage is made, what a nasty metaphor. Scott Talinsky <laughs> has a level up tutorials course on node authentication where you can really dive a little bit deeper into the back end. And he does a good job of explaining some of the differences with these keywords. So he's going to go probably into more depth than we will just because it's like a three or four hour course where we're only going to spend 45 minutes or so talking about these concepts. Yeah. Someone asked, I think on Twitter, I wish I had the tweet handy or maybe it was in discord. I can't remember, but someone was asking like, what would you do if you were to build off into your site? And my answer was like, I would easily use one of these services because it's just like, in theory, I'm capable of it if I sat down and spent enough time, but it's just not the kind of thing that I want to be up to date on best practices all the time. Like that's why having these companies take care of stuff that's really crucial, like your identity authentication authorization is really important is because not only is it like where we are today, but it's like what new features are being added what different sources of login are people looking for? How do you integrate with all that? And then just best practices and from a security standpoint. So that would be my answer as well. And you mentioned like I worked at Auth0 for a couple of years. I talked about a lot of this stuff pretty consistently. I know it fairly well, but I'm still not like an expert in this by any means. So I think at the level that we will be talking about, I should be pretty good. But the last thing I'll add about this, going back to Scott's course, and I've done like West Boss's node course in the past where you build out auth yourself. I think that is a great practice to go through because some of the stuff that we'll talk about today, it's going to be hard to really understand how they relate to each other if it's not something that you've actually written the code for. 
So I would say for something that's like not super important to you that you're not looking to make a huge product out of for demo purposes, go ahead and build out like basic auth stuff with the details that we'll talk about here just to get that practice under your belt and just kind of awareness of how that stuff, at least the basics works behind the scenes. So the first thing that we were going to talk about is authentication versus authorization. And there is a difference. And to be honest, I'm not sure if I really thought about the difference until Mm -hmm. James, you tweeted about it. It may have even been almost a year ago. We were getting ready to do a podcast and you were saying I had one of my most popular tweets ever where I asked people if they knew the difference between authentication and authorization. And I just sat there. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to admit that I wasn't sure what the difference was. But there is a difference. So the difference is that authentication is providing information about who you are. So if you're going to log into the system, it's using a username and password. Authorization is what you have access to. So, for example, we are starting a new app at work and there's an admin, there's a coordinator, there's a user, there's a mentor, and all these people have different levels of authorization. So they can all log into the system. They're all authenticated, but they all can access different pieces depending on their role. Yeah. And like, just to go back to you feeling a little uncomfortable about not having known what the difference between those two were, a lot of people don't. And I think just a friendly reminder for people, like when topics come up that you don't know, force yourself to not be uncomfortable, like force Mm -hmm. yourself to move past the level of uncomfortableness to then ask the question or just go do the research. Like I think anytime I suffer imposter syndrome, there's kind of two ways I look at it. Like, is this really something I need to know? If not, then like, why am I worried about not knowing it? If it's something I feel like I should know, well, now just kind of take the time and go do some research. And I I don't necessarily have to feel that level of imposter syndrome about that specific thing anymore. Anyway, so I, I would say it's a common thing that people don't know the difference. But like you said, authentication is proving who you are. And one of the things going back to ever changing practices that's important is you mentioned username and password. Well, the authentication options now are like vastly greater than that. There's like just email passwords, like you can get the one time token sent to your email, you can do one time tokens to your phone and text message and stuff like that. There's multi factor authentication where you add that on top of username and password, you can log in with your face scan, you can log in with your fingerprint on your phone, there's all these different things that you can now leverage to log in. And that's one of the things that's hard to keep up with, right? Because if I want to build an app that has best practices, and Apple releases this new feature, like being able to log in by scanning your face, that's on you to do all of that research and to figure out how to integrate with a thing that's specific for Apple, if it's something you want to do on your phone. So That sort of stuff is constantly changing. The authentication part, being able to prove who you are is more than just email and password, username and password. So it's a lot of different things. So one example of this, the DMV is where we would go to get our licenses. And to get your license, you have to have a couple different proofs of who you are. So you might have like a birth certificate, social security card, a piece of mail that has come to your address. You're giving them these pieces of proof of who you are. And actually what you get back is a very good proof of who you are, like when you go to a bar or something like that. But the difference is if you go to a bar, which the drinking age here is 21, they don't necessarily care who you are. They just care what you have access to. And so you have access to getting into the bar and drinking by proving on this ID card that you're above the age of 21. So you could get into a bar and not be 21 and you may not get a wristband or you could get into a bar and be able to drink because of proving that you should have access to that by being over the age of 21. That's a great physical example. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, once you start drawing (laughs) parallels. Yeah, it is. Thank you, Amy. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's always helpful is to draw parallels between Mm -hmm. 
things that seem really technical and just like it's kind of everyday concepts. It's not that unique. And now it's time to take a second to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Dato CMS. Dato CMS is a complete and performant headless CMS built to offer the best developer experience and user friendliness in the market. One of the things I think is really interesting and neat on their website is if you hover on their wide Dato CMS tab in the nav bar, you see sections for developers, digital markers, and content creators. So it's got the entire audience covered. They also provide a rich CDN-powered GraphQL API with real-time updates, which is really neat. So all of you who love working with GraphQL and are looking for something that has real-time updates, this is really, really cool. They also provide a super flexible way to handle dynamic layouts and structured content and then have best in-class image and video support with progressive image loading out of the box. So if you're looking for a headless CMS that can help represent every member of your team, make sure to check out Dato CMS. So one of the things that you mentioned in the idea of the dashboard is you might have like an admin, a regular user, a super, super admin. And usually what those translate to are roles and Roles are usually groups of permissions. So permissions are more fine grain. They're smaller. They're saying you have access to do this very specific thing. And then a role is a group of permissions that as an admin, for example, you might have access to all of the permissions or uh, what was one of the other roles you mentioned? A mentor. A mentor. As a mentor, you might have access to a subset of all the potential things that you could have access to. And oftentimes people do this different ways. I think like best practices are these permissions are broken down really, really small, fine grain. And you can kind of think of them as the ability to perform your CRUD operations, create, read, update, and delete on a specific domain. So I don't actually know what your application is, but let's say it's a, if you're talking about instructors and you're thinking about teaching your course, for example. So as the instructor role, you would have access to create a lesson plan. For example, you'd have access to read lesson plans. You'd have access to update and delete lesson plans, but you may not have access to something higher level, like creating courses. So somebody else would create the course schedule. Those would be an admin of some sort. You don't have access to that, but you do have access to the CRUD operations around the domain that you should have access to. And you may have different accesses across different domains. I may be able to read Or as an admin, I may be able to read lesson plans, but I wouldn't be able to change them because that's not my domain. That's not the thing that I'm actually responsible for creating. I'm more responsible for creating the scheduling around the classes for the students. Yeah. And I also want to point out, as we've been scoping out this application that we're building at work, we've had to talk through that roles. So these groups of permissions are also different than job titles. So there's going to be overlap with those roles and those groups of permissions based on job titles, but you would never go to, especially a large company, say Netflix, they're going to have say 500 different job Mm -hmm. titles. And so you wouldn't want to create 500 different roles. You would group some of those job titles based on roles or what type of access you want to give them to. Yeah. And that goes back to like, if an individual is joining your company, you would have to go in and select 350 permissions individually, maybe, or you could group those into a role and say, this person is now just going to have this role, which will take care of all those permissions behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I've also seen stuff where you can assign somebody a role, but then override that a little bit further by giving them Mm -hmm. additional permissions. Yeah. And or subtract them, right? Like Mm -hmm. you start with, here's the base stuff, and then we're going to subtract a few. Absolutely. So the benefits of grouping permissions into role is organization and then from an admin perspective, not admin role, but from a like I'm managing 
the roles and permissions for people by assigning roles. I don't have to go in and assign those permissions individually. So to continue the conversation, I think the question now progresses to like, okay, we have authentication is proving who you are. And that's username, password. It's logging in with an auth provider of some sort, like Twitter, Google, Facebook, Gmail, et cetera. And then we have authorization, which is what do you have access to? So the question becomes, how do we keep track of who is who and what they have access to? And so this leads into a conversation about cookies and sessions. Actually, Amy, I will semi put you on the spot again. Like how familiar are you with the idea of cookies versus sessions? Yeah, I know what they are and I know how to create them. Um, I haven't read through all of your notes, so this will be fun. Uh, (laughs) Cookies are... (laughs) <laughs> I know a grab bag question coming up. They're Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> They're things yes, you eat. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, cookies are things you eat. No, so a cookie is like a piece of information that you would store in your browser. It's local to your computer and you can actually pull up your Chrome developer tools and go to a cookie section to see exactly what cookies are being stored on your site. You probably also see notifications all over the internet. This site uses cookies. And so what that's doing is saying that you're okay with the website storing some information locally on your computer. So cookies is one way that a user could track you as you move throughout their site. A session can be based on like different periods of time. So you could have a browser session, which is as long as you have your browser open. I think you can also have it set to like two weeks or maybe that's just auto expiring. So I use Gmail. When I log in after two weeks, it'll automatically log me out. So I can log in as many times as I want within those two weeks without having to enter my username and password. And then after those two weeks, it'll kick me out. The session information is generally stored in the database. So when I've done stuff with Supabase or Keystone, they will give you those session tokens. So then you can just show that to the website or the database. Hey, I have this token. You should know me. And it'll just carry on like... (laughs) It knows you. (laughs) Yeah, like it knows you. What a magical land. (laughs) (laughs) Just like cheers. Everybody knows your name. Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. So, So, yeah, I think that was a great overview. You mentioned cookies are stored in the browser. This is actually almost a weird thing for me. Like understanding what the browser is doing is Mm. the difference in some of these things that we talk about. But cookies are stored in the browser and they can either be set from the browser itself or from the server. So what the server can do, like if you make a request to a backend server, their server can send a response that includes a setting, basically it's saying, set this cookie browser. So when the browser gets the answer to the original request, it knows to set this cookie. So they can be generated and sent whatever data you want to track inside of a cookie from the client and or the server. The cool thing after that is once that cookie is set, now every request that goes to our backend now includes that cookie. So the cookies are attached to the requests that go back and forth to the server. So if we look at traditional auth going back several years before we get into JWTs, before we get into OpenID Connect and OAuth2 and different identity providers and stuff, that was kind of the way this works. If you go to a login button or a login form, you type in those credentials, username and password primarily is what it was, or email and password. And you would send a request to like a slash API slash user slash login route or something like that, or however you want to do it. The backend would then take those credentials, verify them against the database, and then generate, I will come back to this, but generate a session in the database and then a session ID that gets stored in the cookie. So now the user gets redirected to the dashboard or whatever their homepage is after they're authenticated with a property set in a cookie that includes their session ID. So the session itself is created and stored in the database, like you said, 
And they have that session ID that's inside of the cookie that is stored in the browser and then attached to subsequent requests. So there's a couple of things that are important about cookies. A couple of settings that you can use. One that I didn't list here is expiration time. So you can say that this cookie is going to expire at a certain point. So that's one. The other piece is you can have them be HTTP only. So this is really important because this means that you can set a cookie that is then not accessible inside of JavaScript. And so this opens up more of an opportunity for you to potentially put something in there that is private because it can't be looked at by JavaScript or it's something that you only want to see on the server. So it's one thing that you can do. The other thing that you can do is mark them as secure, meaning that your cookies are only accessible over HTTPS, which means you have to have an SSL certificate for your application. And with uh, modern hosts, this is really kind of automated for you. I haven't had to do, I've never had to do anything with creating my own certificates, to be quite honest. All hosts that I've ever used, I think, have generated those for me, which is really nice. So those are two flags that you can set inside of cookies that give you a lot of control to make sure that they can't be tampered with and looked at for people that you don't want. So HTTP only and secure. And there is like some level of exception to this, but for the most part, and I actually don't know the details, for the most part, cookies are only from one domain to another. What that means is if you have a traditional you know, Ruby on Rails site or like a Node.js backend that has React on the front end, if those are running on the same domain, meaning front end domain and back end domain are on the same thing, same domain, then you can use this idea of cookies to go back and forth. If your front end and back end are on different domains, that's when things get more complicated and you can't really use cookies to be able to track information about a user. That's when we'll get into JWTs here in a second, but we're not quite there yet. So if you are thinking, what about Facebook? Facebook has a pixel, you go to a website and then you come somewhere else and it starts showing you ads. How does that work? That's across multiple domains. What it does is if you say are a company, you can register with Facebook and they'll give you what they call a pixel. And that's just a snippet of code that you can put on your site. And that uses cookies so that if you come to my site and I have a Facebook pixel, it will recognize you as a Facebook user if you have an account because it's going back and forth with their system. And then it will also recognize what pages that you're visiting so that I can then target you later, either on Facebook or any of their affiliates to say, hey, you came to my site. I want to send you more information about what you just looked at. So that's why if you go to an e-commerce site, look at something, and then you go to the next site and you're like, oh, great, now I'm getting ads for this thing. That's how all that works is that it's just all reporting back to Facebook's system. And then because of their network, they're able to push content to you based on the network that they've established. Yeah, it's a pretty in-depth thing that goes on behind the scenes there. And like you mentioned, you see the pop-ups all the time now of, do you accept cookies for them to track you? And Mm -hmm. I don't know. People can do what they want. There's a lot of information out there. And to a certain extent, we voluntarily give that up, even if we don't think about it. So the next step of this, I guess, is going back to the relationship between sessions and cookies. When you go through that login process, what it does is it will create the session. And that's a record in the database. It could have an expired. It could have a currently active, but it's going to have general information about the user maybe their user ID, maybe their email, maybe a few different small pieces of information. And then basically like a logged in checkbox. Is this user logged in or is this session still valid? Could have an expiry timestamp, as you mentioned. So it creates that. And then if you think about that record in a database, having a unique ID, a session ID, in the cookie, you save the session ID in your cookie. 
So what happens is you send the user back and then they want to do something, make an API call to the back end. That API call includes the cookie. The cookie is then inspected to grab the session ID. Then it's going to go to the database and look for a session with that ID and see that it's a valid session to know that the user is still logged in. So the trade-offs here, and this is going between like the traditional cookie session and then having JWTs, the negative part is for each incoming request that needs to be authenticated or proved to be authenticated and authorized, you have to make a request to the database to get the information you need about the user. Are they logged in, their user ID, stuff like that. The good thing about this is that you can invalidate a user at any time. So you could go and delete that record of the session in the database, or you could set a flag to archived or like not logged in or whatever it is, probably you just delete it. Or you have that concept of an expiry time. So it's easy to invalidate a user, but it's a little bit time consuming. It's a small amount, but it's time consuming. Each request then requires an additional database request to get the information about the session itself. So that makes sense. If I'm on, say, another computer, I can say log out of Gmail everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I guess that's what it's doing is it's deleting my session in the database so that I have to log in anytime I go to a device. Absolutely. That's a good point. So you would have different sessions per device. So inside of that sessions table, remember that session ID is tracked inside of a cookie that is stored in your browser, which means on different devices, you'll be on different browsers, which means you'll have different sessions for each one. So if you want to log out of all devices, you would just go in and clear all sessions that have whatever your user ID is, exactly like you said. Cool. Let me take a brief moment and talk about the company that I work for, Zeal. They actually sponsor our podcast. They design custom applications and develop primarily in Rails and React. They're a remote first company even before the pandemic. They're based out of Southern Oregon, but I live outside of Nashville and we have team members across the entire country. But Zeal holds a special place in my heart because as I mentioned, I work there, but I can honestly say it's the best place that I've ever worked. And good news for you, they are hiring. So you could work with me. In particular, we are hiring a senior UI UX designer and front end developer. I'm pretty stoked about this position because you'll be on my team. We have some really fun initiatives planned for 2022, so you get to be a part of that. In general, our whole setup is pretty unique. So you can find more information on the website, codingzeal.com. And of course, I'll include a link in the description below. So the next iteration of this is JWTs, JSON Web Tokens. And this became incredibly popular in the last several years. And for people who maybe have heard of JWTs, JSON Web Tokens, and maybe don't fully understand them. This is something that like blew my mind for years, to be quite honest, until I got to Aussie and really kind of sat down and, and tried to understand them. But JWTs are a piece of basically encoded information that has three different parts. It has a header and inside of the header, you have information about what algorithm was used to encode it. You have the type of token that it is, which in this case would be JWT. You may have some other things in there, but that's kind of the most important parts. And then you have the body, and the body is kind of anything you want to add to it. So this is just JSON structure. So you can add user ID and email and profile picture URL, whatever you want to add to this data inside of the token, inside of the JWT, you can add that. And then the most important part about this, the hardest thing for me to grasp for literally over the course of several years is the signature. So what happens is it takes all that information, the header information and the body information, and then it takes that, it combines it into a string, and then it signs the token. So what this means is it will have some sort of private key or some sort of secret key 
that it will use to sign this token to then translate it into a signature that goes on the end of the token. So the JWT itself is an encoded thing that has those three parts. The last part being the actual signature and it's a verify signature, which means if someone sends me a token, if I know the original secret key that was used to sign it, I can use that key to verify that that token has not been tampered with. And this is the most important part of JWTs. The data that's inside of it is just encoded with a basic algorithm. So you can actually go to something like JWTIO and paste in a raw JWT and you can see the information that's inside of it, which the important part here is don't put anything private inside of it. No credit card numbers or social security numbers, that sort of stuff. And that signature, even though everyone, if they had access to the token, could look at the information inside of it, they would not be able to verify that it's a legit token, that it came from the right source, that it was generated from the right source using the original secret key that it was used to sign. So there's two ways that this can work. You can sign it with one private key, and then your application would also need to know the private key that it was signed with. So if you think about, like, if you have a traditional express application you could generate these tokens on the back end with a secret key and then when they send the token back to you you could validate it with that same secret key or if you're working on things that are potentially across domains you might do a public private key pair so you have one key that's used to sign it and then you could have multiple keys potentially that are used to then validate that thing is real it really was like mind-blowing for me but it all boils down to you have full control over validating that this token is real and came from the right place based on either the private key that you have access to or a public-private key combination that you also have access to to use in your validation. That was a great explanation. I feel like I'm still in that middle land. I've heard the explanation of JWT several times, but my explanation would have been very vague. <laughs> it's still tricky for me to explain that to you. And anyway, yeah, it's a tough thing. And like I said, I heard the explanations for several years before really understanding how that validation, that's the big part for me, how that validation part works. So going back to comparing this with the use of cookies and sessions, we mentioned with cookie session relationship, the session ID is in the cookie. So every time you send a request to the backend, the backend has to make a request to the database to check to see if the user is logged in. With a JWT, since you can embed information inside of it, basically anything you want, you can go ahead and keep the information inside of the token that you need. The simplest thing would be the user ID. And so if I send a request to the backend, there's a couple ways that this token can be attached to it. But let's just say you send a request to the backend, include your JWT, your JSON web token. The backend can then validate that that thing is real. It hasn't been tampered with. It hasn't been changed. And then not need to go to the database to figure out who the user is and the fact that they're logged in. And you could also include in there like their roles and permissions and that sort of stuff. So the benefit is you're not having to make a subsequent request to the database every time. But the difficult thing, the downside is that it's harder to invalidate a user. So JWTs can have an expiry time just like you could set for your cookies and your session records. But once a token is out there, it's basically you can't stop the person from having the token. And there's no real way behind the scenes unless you're doing some sort of tracking of which tokens are valid in your database. There's no way to invalidate that thing and know that it's invalid if it's not expired. Because if you were then storing information about the tokens that you generated and whether or not they were valid, then you're having to do that same database call every time that you then got rid of by moving to JWTs from cookies and sessions. So those are the trade-offs. JWTs are incredibly popular. 
you can combine these with the concept of cookies. So you can create a like user logs in on the server. You generate a JWT, you attach it to the cookie. You have it be secure and HTTP only, which means it's safe to keep that thing there. And then it comes back through in every request. Great. Another way you could do this that Auth0 does by default is to store that token in memory. So every time you either log in or load the page, you're going to get the JWT from the server and just keep it in memory and then attach that to your request. Oftentimes you'll see this attached to a header that's called authorization. And then it'll be a key of bearer space and then the token. It's called a bearer token. Your application on the server side would then know where to go and look and find that token. The other thing that you can do on the front end is store your JWT in local storage. So let's say you go and log in, it sends you back a JWT, you keep that thing inside of local storage. That way, when you refresh the page, you go and grab the key if it exists from the local storage, you know that the user's logged in and you can now display whatever information, admin dashboard or whatever it is based on the user being logged in. But (laughs) the idea of cross-side scripting is the potential downside of using local storage. And that you'll like if you read about storing JWTs in local storage, you'll honestly hear mixed results. And like I think all the stuff that West Boss does, and I think I'm not actually sure the stuff that Scott Talinsky has in his courses, but a lot of that and a lot of other things that I've seen people build store JWTs tokens inside of local storage. The problem, or at least the thing that you have to make sure that you protect against is not allowing cross-site scripting, which means someone's able to inject some sort of JavaScript into your website. And because they're running their own JavaScript on your site, they could then go to local storage dot get item and say, give me all the items and look at whatever data you stored in there and grab the token. And then if your tokens get leaked, the hacker could then use that token and send a request to your APIs The API has no idea that it's not the right person. They're just looking at the token. And here's the real world example that is extremely useful for me. Let's say, have you seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? Oh, yeah. Yep. So he ends up finding a golden ticket, right? He's not necessarily the person who opened it, Mm -hmm. right? He found it. So he could be the owner of it. He could not be, but it doesn't matter. When he goes to the Chocolate Factory, he's got the golden ticket. So he gets access to getting into the Chocolate Factory. Similar thing with movie theater tickets. If you go to watch a movie, let's say you buy tickets, you've got your own ticket, you go to get ice cream beforehand because you've got time to kill, you drop your ticket. Someone finds your ticket, someone then goes to the movie and presents that ticket. I was this person, the doorman has no idea whether or not you purchased that ticket or if you stole it or found it on the ground. The only thing they know is it's a valid ticket. So same thing with JWTs. If you leak your tokens, Someone could use that and just send a request to the backend. The backend has no idea other than this is still a valid JWT. So that's one of the things that people have to keep in mind. Something I won't get into this because honestly, I'm not the best at explaining it. But there are things called refresh tokens, which are used to keep your original tokens short lived. So the problem with potentially leaking your tokens is if you have them valid with an expiry time of six months. That's a long window for you to potentially leak them and for someone else to have access to do whatever it is on your behalf. But let's say you created your tokens with a short lifespan to say, hey, these only last an hour. Well, if you leak a token, that's not great, but it's not near as bad as if you leaked one that had an expiry time of six months, right? Because that user will only have access for that short amount of time. So refresh tokens are a way to constantly generate new tokens. If your token is expired, if you send along the refresh token, they will then send back 
a new token. And there's some details that are like slightly beyond me. I've understood them and explained them at different points that help make that process as secure as possible. So that can go pretty deep, but at a high level, you can use JWT's JSON web tokens to store some information about the user inside of them, sign it with the verify signature, which then allows the server to be able to validate. This is a genuine token that hasn't been tampered with and you can store them and track them in a lot of different ways. That was one of my longest explanation and i wouldn't have been much help <laughs> <laughs> so we'll move on like i said earlier it's good stuff i think for people to have the practice of at some mm-hmm. point it's not the kind of thing that most people need to be experts in most of the time mm-hmm. or even just understanding the concepts we've mm-hmm. set up auth zero on the compressed site and so mm-hmm. even just going through and checking the settings and knowing what those terms and those buzzwords mean yeah. is helpful absolutely yeah, I agree. And that goes back to, I've always said, like, if you want to be a front-end developer, I recommend people also learn about back-end development because you'll be that much better at working and integrating with back-end developers because you'll know the language and you'll know what to expect. So yeah, absolutely agree with that. I also feel the same way about design and development, but that might be a hot rant. Yes. No, <laughs> I, no another, I agree. For another yeah. episode. Well, there's lots of memes and jokes about like design is like, we want it to look like this. And the developer's like, I can't do that. And they're like, why in the world would you not be able to do that? Yeah. <laughs> so understanding the designer yeah. creates something and takes it to development. And they're like, why can't you <laughs> do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I think kind of thinking about well-roundedness for people, mm-hmm. this is definitely a great topic to learn some more about and get a little bit of practice with. As we wrap up, I've just got a short section here on like identity slash SaaS platform software as a service to help handle authentication we talked about Auth0 and Okta. It, honestly, if like thinking about if I were to set up an application right now, Auth0 is a really, really, really good option. For React, there's a dedicated SDK. For Next.js, there's a dedicated SDK. The Next.js one is really, really good. That's what we're using with the compressed FM site. So it gives us the ability to protect pages, protect server-side routes, and all this is in like a handful of lines of code. It's really, really good. I've actually never used Okta, even though I was there when we got acquired by Okta. I've never used it myself. So I can't specifically say from my experience how that is, but it's a very, obviously, very, very popular product. And then we get into stuff like Superbase and Firebase that we both, I think, are really big fans of just because these are platforms that enable you to build full stack applications without having to have a whole lot of that knowledge of how the authentication pieces work. Yep. And next auth is another one. And that plugs into a lot of these other pieces that we've talked about. Actually, most of these plug into those other pieces that we've talked about. If you want to have magic links or Google or Twitter or any of those mm-hmm. things, there are different packages and add-ons that you can include. Yeah. Next auth is incredibly popular. And I think that's such a good point of there's so many ways to integrate authentication into your application through these other platforms, through magic links and so on. And one of the cool things about Superbase and Firebase, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this specifically, but I had this question early on with Firebase. So with Firebase, you can set up Firebase in your front end JavaScript and you can include an API token in your front end JavaScript. And I'm like really outspoken about like your API tokens, your API keys, your secret credentials. They should never be in the browser, which makes some like modern authentication authorization strategies more difficult. But you should never have those in the browser because someone could go and inspect your code and see what those private credentials are. So I always wondered, why am I able to set up Superbase and or Firebase on the front end, include my API token? It's a public token, so they may like name it that way, but it's an API token. Why am I able to keep that thing on the front end and allow users to interact with the database without having to have any sort of back end or secret credential? Do you know why that is? 
No. So this is cool because those platforms are made to take care of the idea of authorization for you. So in Superbase and Firebase, you have some way to configure what the authorization rules are around a user. So what this means is you can set up Superbase and Firebase to let anyone, even if they're not authenticated, do CRUD operations on some piece of data. If it's a to-do app, anyone can create, read, update, and delete. But it's not really what you want, right? If you think about an application like Twitter, like I can only create my own tweets. I can only delete my tweets. I can, I think you can't edit tweets, but if a Facebook posts or something, you can only edit those. So what happens is because they give you this ability to configure your authorization on their platform. So like Firebase, you can write a little bit of scripts and maybe have some checkbox or templates or something. In Superbase, they use RLS, which is the role level security policies you're basically defining all of your authorization in their platform so that you don't have to have a backend at all. And you lock that stuff down to make sure a user has to be authenticated to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And then you can take that even more fine grain. And this is what we do in Everything Svelte is where a user has to be logged in to view any of that data, but they can only view and update and delete records that is associated with their user ID. So this is where this matching, and this is actually something that people forget about in building their own applications, is if you have an update route on your backend and someone sends you a request and say, I want to update this record, you don't just go and like update that record. You go and verify that the user who sent you the request mm-hmm. owns that record. So all that stuff is taken care of for you in the backend, which means you don't have the need to write your own proxy backend server API endpoints because they're already doing it for you. So they are doing the equivalent of you building out your own server where you're checking authentication and authorization against your different data domains. Yeah, that's exactly why. (laughs) Just use the services that already exist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. Anyways, I think that stuff is cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Became a little bit of a nerd in this area out of necessity. And I'll do like one really quick extra thing. The only reason I'm able to have this conversation is because I ended up working at a company where that became my job. And so similar with working at PlanetScale, like I didn't know much about databases before coming here. And now that I'm here, I'm learning so much and still have so much to learn. So I think career opportunity wise for people out there that are maybe interested, being able to work on different types of projects can help build these different areas of skill sets that can help take you to you know, new opportunities and next levels in your career. So none of this stuff would I ever have been able to explain without having worked at Osira for a couple of years. And we've talked about multiple times this idea of a broken comb where you're trying to learn just an overview of all these different topics, and then you can decide what you want to go deep on. And as you progress in your career, you'll have taller verticals in some areas than others. Absolutely. And let's take a minute and talk about Vercel. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. We're actually hosting the Compressed.fm site and my personal site, selfteach.me on Vercel. They also power more well-known sites like Twilio, but you can use them for e-commerce, travel, news, and marketing sites. You name it, they can host it. When I got ready to launch the compressed site, it was super easy. I pointed it to the GitHub repository and told it what folder my next.js project was in, and then it just worked. Ridiculous, right? But they also power over 30 plus Jamstack frameworks, including Create React App, Next, Nuxt, Vue, Ember, Svelte, Angular, Hugo, and Gatsby, just to name a few. But one of my favorite features is when you set up your account, you get your own dashboard. And here you can invite other team members to collaborate or view analytics. So as soon as I push the code to my GitHub repository, it deploys that code and I can watch the build and its entire process through their custom dashboard. So 
Be sure to check out Vercel. I'll include a link in the show notes, but special thanks to Vercel for being a Compressed.fm sponsor. So we've got uh, a couple of questions that actually came in through Discord. So we'll get into our grab bag questions section, (laughs) which is where we take questions from friends and strangers alike on the internet. And we've got two from Mark Huggins in Discord. So for people that are not familiar, if you go to learnbuildteach.com, the website's not great, but you can figure out how to get into the Learn, Build, Teach Discord. And we have a compressed FM channel where we let people ask questions about the topics that we're covering. And Mark asks, is it JWT or JOT? And I'll give you my little bit of a rant on this. And I'm kind of curious your take. So I've never understood why people call them JOTs, but JWTs or JSON Web Tokens, you'll oftentimes hear people refer to them as JOTs, and I don't understand it. I guess it's just easier to say than JWT. It's less syllables. I guess that's it. I don't really know. So I do JWT. I do not call them JOTs myself, although it is something that you would hear out in the community. So what do you call them, Amy? I also call them JWTs. So two for JWT. I feel like this is the equivalent of somebody saying, what's the URL or what's the URL? <laughs> that one always <laughs> gets Earl, me. Earl, I don't. <laughs> like, yeah, who's I don't. Earl? Do you say Earl? No, I yeah, do not So you say don't Earl. say, okay. I think Henry okay. said Earl one time and I was like, no. <laughs> no. Stop this right now. Well, let's let's shut this, <laughs> shut it down. Have you, I forget, do you watch New Girl? Have you watched New Girl? We started through season one and then I think we took a brief hiatus for something else, but we haven't come back to it. So we need, oh, we need to jump okay. again. Yeah, I'm trying it's, to think why we jumped over. It was something newer, like okay. brand new that was popular that we wanted yeah. to take a break. And we knew that yeah. New Girl would be waiting for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll go back to it because it's one of my favorite shows of all time. But there's a scene where Jess has become an admin at a school and she's teaching about like not having relationships with your coworkers. And she's like, if anybody comes up to you and says, ask you want a date or something, she's like, all you have to do is say, shut it down. <laughs> and she does like this like X hand motion or whatever. Anyway, so it's like. That's something that I say a lot with <laughs> my friends. Shut it down. Shut it down. Well, we're talking about New Girl, and then we really mm. can get on to grab back questions. My favorite episode so far has been the coyote episode where mm. yeah. <laughs> they get stuck in the desert and they're scared of coyotes and they run into a coyote and she has to scare it mm-hmm. away. It's hilarious. <laughs> and this is when Nick is debating or is supposed to move back in with his ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. Caroline, and he freaks out because he's got everything packed in the van and he freaks out and he drives everybody to the desert and he freaks out even more. Or maybe Schmidt is the one that throws the keys like down oh, this yeah. mountain yep, cliff. Because nobody wants and them so to get together. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yes. I just get back to it. I love, love new girl. Maybe we should have a new girl segment. <laughs> We should have a New Girl segment. I agree. I've done many quotes from New Girl in my day. The other question from Mark Huggins is just the idea of rolling your own versus using a service, trade-offs, etc. I think we've kind of talked about that throughout most of this. I think it's worth going through building yourself for like practice and kind of learning experience. I don't think it makes much sense for most of the things that we build to do it yourself, just because there's so much that potentially goes into that. Yeah, and we actually had James Perkins on a live episode, and he was talking about all the microservices that he used to build his SaaS app and just the value that microservices offer, not just for authentication and authorization, but all these other components. So Mm -hmm. give that one a listen, too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think James, going back to different platforms, I think he mentioned he's using clerk.dev, which is another option for people that are looking to integrate auth into their applications. And we actually have... A grab bag question from James Perkins himself, which is, what is your favorite Girl Scout cookies? Because in a conversation about cookies, this is probably the most important one. Uh, I would say either Tagalongs or Samoas. 
What about you? I think it's probably the same for me. I'm I'm honestly not like a huge fan of Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> if so I, I don't know if I'm gonna get banned. <laughs> That's your unpopular yeah, opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here's the: if there are sweets in my house, I will eat them. Mm-hmm. So I, I have self control to not get them at the grocery store or at the stand. Yes. I do not have the self control to not eat them. So I, I it, Jess is like will always buy some. And I'm like, if you want to support them, like give them 20 bucks, but just don't bring them into the house. Cause I like, I will like, she may or may not eat them. I will definitely eat them. But, um, I think tagalongs would be mine too. Or That's thin the, mints. it's got, thin mints is good. Thin min- yeah. Thin mints are good. Put the um, thin mints in tag- the freezer. Parenting tip. Do we do that? Yeah. Oh, parenting tip one-on-one hot take. Um, yeah, Jess has done that. So I've done that too. I agree with you. It's much easier to make the decision once a week to say, no, I will not pick it up at the grocery mm-hmm. store than it is to make the decision every single time you walk through the kitchen of no, yeah, I will not absolutely. eat that. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so that's it. That's our grab bag. We can move into our picks and plugs section as we wrap up where we pick something that we want to share with you that we think is cool and then plug something that we've worked on that we also think is cool that you should know about. So Amy, do you have picks and plugs for us yes so this can be combined with my parenting tip i am going to pick a app called code spark and i downloaded it and put it on our ipad for my son to play so he has a friend that i'm sure is going to be brilliant he, he talks to isaac all the time about games that he's coded in his youtube channel <laughs> and part of me tries to win parenting points like hey isaac you know i have a youtube channel <laughs> Or, <laughs> you know, I know how to code. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. And he's like, no, no, no. This is real coding. And you're like, whatever. <laughs> so, but anytime my kids are interested in art or STEM things, I just always try and embrace that and help them with have resources to be able to encourage that. So CodeSpark is one of those. It's an app that teaches your kids logic and just some of the principles of coding because there's a difference between knowing a programming language and also the principles of coding. It's why after you really understand one language, people say, oh, you can pick up other languages pretty quickly. And that's because you understand the concepts. And then a lot of the other pieces become about syntax. So this is supposed to help kids on a very young level. So he's seven, just for reference, be able to learn code. So, and it's been fun. We, there's one little game on there that we were playing the other day where you can do two players and you pass it back and forth where you throw water balloons at each other. And so you have to program these little people to do different things so that you can attack the other player with water balloons. And then for my plug, I'm going to plug our Everything's Felt course. So this is a course that James and I are working on together that will teach you how to build a full stack application in SvelteKit and Supabase. And it'll take you from the very beginning. So you'll style the whole thing and then you'll actually build it out. We'll also talk about things like authentication and authorization. And we'll also talk about testing and sending emails. So there's a lot of concepts and topics that are covered. You can go to everythingsfelt.com and go ahead and stick your email address in. We're hoping, drumroll, to release by the end of April, beginning of May. James, what about you? Do you have any picks and plugs? Yeah, I'm going to pick. Publix is a grocery store, I guess primarily in the South. So it's really popular in Florida. It's kind of the de facto grocery store in Florida. And we had it in Nashville when we were in college there. We had it in Florida when we lived there. And then we haven't had it in New York City and Memphis where we live now. And Publix has a brand of meat and cheese called Boar's Head. And Publix has the best subs is what it boils down to. Like you can go to Subway or Firehouse or you pick any Lenny's, pick any place. Uh, These are all American ones for people that may be international. But any sub sandwich place, 
Publix, the grocery store is significantly better. And it's become like such a big deal. Like Jess makes a huge deal about it. And I 100% support her. Anytime we drive through Nashville, that's what we do. So we were even in Chattanooga and we were going to our friend's house to have breakfast and they were like a little bit behind. So we went to Publix to like get eggs and bacon to bring or sauces to bring to them. And we got a sub because it was like, <laughs> this is, we're already here. We might as well take advantage of it. And then on the way home, the reason I was so close to you is because we got off of the interstate that we were on to go up another interstate, not that far, but up another interstate a little bit to go to Publix and get some like fresh fruit and sandwiches for the way home. So if you ever get to go to a Publix grocery store, Make sure to grab a sub sandwich. They, they are, are delicious. Very good. Yeah. So you just go mm-hmm. to the deli section. So for anybody that's mm-hmm. <laughs> wondering where you get that, it's just that fresh meat and cheese. Yes. And the bread. Get mm-hmm. the multi-grain bread is my favorite. She gets the white bread. I like multi-grain. Anyway, so they're delicious. Go and check them out. And then for plug, I'll double down just to reiterate. Everything's felt. It's been a ton of fun so far to work on. We're going to have, hopefully pull in some people that represent the different products to do some vetting to make sure this stuff looks, you know, this is the best practice for how we would do this kind of thing. So really looking forward to that. Go and check it out at everythingsfelt.com. But I want to plug the Learn, Build, Teach Discord specifically for something that we're going to be working on. So one of the, I would say, like things we want to do better at is engagement with people inside of the Learn, Build, Teach Discord. So we've had a few different ideas. And one thing specifically that I'm excited to do is implement like a kudos system. And so what this will be is you can give people kudo points specifically for the three pillars of the community, which is learning, building, and teaching. So if someone responds and answers a question, you can give them kudos for teaching. Or if someone asks a question in the Discord, you can give them kudos for learning. Or if they say, today I learned this thing, give them kudos for learning. So I think it'll be a way for us to support each other and engage with each other uh, even more. So uh, I'll probably do some streams with that. I'm going to migrate the data to PlanetScale and there'll be node express code and the back end to handle all this stuff. Anyway, it should be a fun project to kind of take the interactions in the Discord to a new level. So you can find this at learnbuildteach.com. Though, again, the website's not that great, but you can at least find a link to the Discord to join us and hang out there. All right, so that's going to wrap up our episode. If you have any additional questions on authentication, authorization, local storage, JWT, sessions, cookies, all the things, feel free to ask us inside of the Learn, Build, Teach Discord and or on Twitter with Compressed FM handle. In the next episode, Amy is going to be the leader of this one because we're going to talk about animation, something that I know, you know, the basics about and not really much more than that and don't use myself all that often. So I'm looking forward to that and learning a lot more from Amy. But in the meantime, that's all we got.